and he's one heck of a guy, and uh, I'd just like to introduce uh, James M. from Slidell, Louisiana. Thank you, Hi, everybody. My name is James Morell. I am an alcoholic. I'm, I'm using my last name because I put Slidell on my badge, and everybody says your name James Slidell, Slidell, Louisiana. And I want to tell you, well, it's New Orleans, our largest suburb. You know, it's, uh, it's right next door to there. And uh, I want to tell you that by the grace of a loving God, as I have come to understand him in Alcoholics Anonymous and hanging around with guys just like you and you guys, I had my last drink July 11th of 1981. I'm very grateful for this period of sobriety. That happens to be 7,609 days, one day at a time if you keep track of such things, and I do. My first sponsor told me that every day was precious. I slipped and slided around this program for a year and a half before I got sober. I picked up 40 of those. In, in New Orleans, there's 24-hour chips or green chips. I picked up 40 of those green chips because I couldn't seem to surrender to this, to this program. And when finally alcohol beat me into a state of reasonableness, I asked for help for the first time. Been an A for a year and a half, never asked for help. Wanted to look good. Better look good than feel good. And I asked for help. My first sponsor told me, he said, you keep track of those days and you give your sobriety date every time you talk. Two reasons, he said. First of all, you need something to hold on to. You need something to hold on to because you've had nothing to hold on to. Second reason, I want to embarrass the hell out of you if you ever get drunk again. Everybody's going to know your sobriety date. And so I keep track of it one, one day at a time. God, it's good to be up here. It's good to be with you folks. The Robber's Roost Group. Yeah. Yeah. What a deal. It's your meeting Thursday night. Y'all got a good group. There was enthusiasm in that group. There was a spirit in that group. And that was the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's, it's in here today. I was wondering, why are you guys all doing here? I mean, I, I was kind of standing up here before and feel a little nervous, a little inadequate. You know, Kip asked me how I was doing. I said, well, I guess I just got to apply my usual philosophy, you know, when in trouble, when in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout, you know, I, I don't know, I'm kind of hoping that fire alarm would run, ring again, you know, and uh, we have a, I ain't had a fire drill since I was in elementary school, you know, that was, <laughs> we all just wandered outside, you know, and uh, that's, that's interesting, it's beautiful up here, it's really an honor to be up here, pronounce this like Cuyamaca? Cuyamaca, is that, that, Cuyamaca, is that close enough? Beautiful place. I don't have any hills in Louisiana. Whatever it is, who cares? I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's just great. It's, uh, it's really great to be here. Uh, I guess we're really all up here to help Kip celebrate his, uh, his 18th birthday tomorrow. If he, if he stays sober that long, you know, you think think he'll make it till tomorrow? No. Ah, we better we better watch him. You know, in some groups they have this tradition where where you do a watch. You know, when it's the night before the guys birthday you get together with him you know and you, you stay with him till midnight we do that uh, we do that from time to time best watch I've ever was on I was speaking down in a little South Louisiana Cajun town uh, called Homa Louisiana Kip's been to Homa Kip talked in Homa and old Ned was about to have his sixth birthday and so after the meeting they said we're going to do a watch for Ned you know and Ned's this old Cajun he's dating this stripper down at the strip club you know so all the AAs go down to the strip club you know and and, uh, and all the strippers are there you know we hang around there and everybody knows Ned's an AA so Ned can't get a drink in there you know and, and we're hanging around in there and all the strippers are coming up and at midnight they put on this show for him and everything and I thought boy this is Alcoholics Anonymous this is a pretty good deal <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good <laughs> 
except we can't promise you any strippers tonight, but uh, uh, we'll do the best we can. You know, we we'll get Kevin. All right. Stubby will strip for you. Those Vacaville guys, they'll do about anything, you know. You know, one of the things they don't tell you, you come in here and you say, God, I want to be an old timer. And you don't realize if you accumulate a little over 20 years, you also become old. Kip was telling me, he says, he says, you better start taking some Geritol with your Viagra so you remember what the hell it is you're taking it for, you know. Poor man, Viagra, he could probably afford, you know, you can get it at Walmart. It's a combination of, of miracle Grow and Fix-A-Flat. <laughs> You know, you know, uh, uh, I've never been to a men's retreat before. I don't know whether it's uh, safe or not. It reminds me of the story. You know, we got these uh, Cajuns down in, in, in South Louisiana. You know, I'm, I'm originally from Texas, but when I was about 10, my father discovered the French Quarter in New Orleans, and he found that that's where the party was. So, and some of y'all been sharing with me that y'all have been to the party down there, you know, and I... It was a party. Oh, I damn near killed myself doing that. But I grew up in a little small South Louisiana Cajun French town called New Iberia, which is Cajun country. The motto there is laissez le bon temps rouler, which means let the good times roll. And coming to a men's retreat reminds me of the story of Robichaud and Boudreaux. And Robichaud comes up to Boudreaux and he says, Boudreaux, it's kind of a sponsorship moral in this too. He says, Boudreaux, three years ago, you remember, you told me that I should take my vacation and I should go to Catalina Island off the coast of California. And Boudreaux says, yeah, Robichaud, I, I, I told you that. He says, well, when I come back nine months later, Marie, she has a baby. He says, and you remember that two years ago, you told me to take a vacation to Cancun. And when I come back nine months later, Marie, she has a baby. He says, yeah, I remember that. He says, and last year you told me to go to Paris. And I come back and nine months later, Marie has a baby. He says, yeah, Boudreaux, what you going to do about that? He says, next time I want to take Marie along with me. <laughs> So I don't want you guys to worry about what's going on at home, but uh, here we are, you know. <laughs> here we are. Oh. I want to tell you that I'm a member of the Strange Camels group of Slidell, Louisiana. We are, <laughs> yeah, Strange Camels group. You know, Bill Wilson once remarked, uh, people were always writing Bill and uh, complaining about what was going on in the group, you know, saying, oh, we're getting these oddballs and these ne'er-do-wells in here and crazy people are coming to us and whatever. Bill got these letters all the time. And one time he wrote back to this guy who was making this complaint, you know, about all the losers and the ne'er-do-wells and the nutsos that had showed up at the group. And he wrote the guy back and he says, well, dear friend, he says, uh, you know, AA is just kind of like a little small oasis in this vast desert of alcoholism. And he says, in this oasis of AA, many strange camels wander into our tent. Finally, Bill, you know, and we looked at that and thought, yeah, we're the strange camels that wandered into the tent. And I want to tell you, having been to a meeting of the Robbers Roost group, y'all would fit in just fine in our group. <laughs> we meet on top of an old-fashioned ice cream parlor. There are bars on the other three corners. We've even measured it, you know, where it says in the big book, you don't think you're an alcoholic. Go to the nearest bar. We've determined that the Cats Club is exactly two paces closer than many Capellis of the Wild Irish Rose, so we know exactly where to refer them to. We are a smoking meeting. Although we, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we still smoke in Louisiana. Yeah. My group has a smoking policy, however. Anybody who wishes to not smoke can step outside and not smoke all they want. Yeah. 
never have stopped anybody from not smoking. But we're an active, enthusiastic group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we move around a bit, and we sponsor, and we 12-step wet drunks. And uh, uh, we have grown from myself and one other guy reading the big book to each other seven years ago. We have 75 members now. We put on a couple of workshops like this a year. We've been privileged to have Bob D., who's going to be sharing with us tonight, to come in and spend a weekend with us and to go through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with us. And it was an extraordinary weekend. We, we do that twice a year. We bring in uh, someone and we get together like this for a weekend. Of course, uh, you know, it start, my group started off as a men's group and then uh, my wife, I was, I was married then, you know. Uh, uh, we've been going on for about two or three months and then Karen had been meeting with her girls and one day they kind of, uh, we were meeting at my house out in the yard. They were meeting in, in the dining room table and one day they come out and they say we decided to come to your meeting I said oh god there goes the neighborhood so anyway it, it, uh, it started out as a men's group but it didn't end up didn't end up that way but uh, in, in fact uh, we have some very strong active women who sponsor people in that group you know there's a point in talking about all this I'm about to get into the history and traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous and a lot of y'all have asked me you said what, what's this all about why are we talking about this are you an historian do you something like that I said no not particularly. I have a degree in history. I have a degree in history for exactly one reason. I found that you, if you were uh, taking history classes at LSU, you could spend most of your time at the Bingle Barn Lounge and pass those courses, you know. But it made sense to me at the time. Um, but when I got here, I've always been interested in history, not as, not as a series of dry events, you know, like who gives a damn that the Treaty of Ghent settled the French and Indian War in 1763. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, who cares? I didn't care then, I don't care now. But I come here and y'all were telling your stories. And I found your stories fascinating. I love to listen to your stories. God, did we hear a great story last night. Larry moved me. Larry moved me. We, we heard Alcoholics Anonymous from this, from this podium. We heard the recovery from a seemingly hopeless condition of mind and body. We heard the story of a man who was setting out on a quest to try to do something with his life and wrecked his life and then found recovery and relief and joy in this program. That's what we heard last night. And that's what I hear when I come to the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what fascinated me about you folks from, from the start. And AA's story is just as fascinating. It's a story of colossal human weakness, terrible failure, of drunks who had really no business recovering or no business even coming together, coming together and starting something that 66 years later had led to us being at this beautiful campground in the mountains of California, gathered together. You see, history to me is simply a series of stories. It's a story of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the process of that story, we've learned how to live together. We've learned how to, uh, as, I was, as I was sharing with J.B. and some of the others this morning, none of us got sober on the principles of this program. Not one man in here got sober because he read the 12 steps and said, I'm going to just sit down and do these 12 steps and stop drinking. Not a one of us did. We come here and a spirit touches us. Spirit. When I walked into the room, the first time I walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, y'all were laughing about things that I'd been trying to hide all my life. Y'all were telling stories. Y'all were hugging each other. 
It wasn't even the French Quarter. Men were hugging men. Oh, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? No, but I got, I got to like that. I got to like that. There was something different there. It was the spirit that attracted me. It was the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous upon which I stopped drinking. Now, I stay sober by practicing the principles of the program. I, stay, I cannot stay sober without taking the steps of the program and applying them in my life. But what we're talking about when we start talking about the traditions is just simply the way that we manage to combine the spirit of this program into hanging out with each other just, 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 like, just like we've done we've done this weekend, you know. And it's, it's been a marvelous weekend. Y'all have really treated me beautifully and I want to thank you very much for inviting me to come out here and to be with you. I loved going to your meeting Thursday night. That was as good a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous as, I, as I've been to. Like I say, it was full of enthusiasm, it was full of, of, of a lot of laughter, it, it, was, it had some pathos in it. You know, we had one guy there who just was having a horrible time staying sober, just couldn't figure the deal out. And you all guys shared your recovery with him, you know, whether he hears it or not, but you shared it with me. You shared it with me. I want to thank Kip for taking me out to dinner and, uh, uh, and you guys for feeding me last night. Oh, that, I tell you what, that barbecue last night was about as good as it gets. Really enjoyed that. I want to thank Jesse for the beautiful artwork on the T-shirt. I'll, I'll carry it home with me and that and the cup. And, and it'll be like a little memory of, of you guys. I'll carry you home, home with me in that sense. What I'm really going to carry you home with me is in my heart. I had a chance to share with quite a few of you this weekend. I hope I've shaken all of your hands. If I haven't, please come up and introduce yourself to me after. You know, I'm here to be with you all this weekend. I'm up here today simply because... I'm an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous who happens to have gotten interested in how this deal works. You know, uh, when uh, Jesse was reading the, how it works, it says, rarely we've seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. What's the path? What's the path? Today we're going to talk a little bit about the path of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're going to talk about a miracle that has occurred in the world. We're going to talk about the fact that 66 years ago, nobody got sober. Nobody had ever gotten sober and stayed sober. I mean, they might have gotten dry for a while. But when I say sober, I mean something more than just the absence of alcohol. There is a man in this room that hadn't tried the absence of alcohol. And the absence of alcohol makes me thirsty. I can't stand the absence of alcohol. I'm in this room because I can't take the absence of alcohol. When, I, when I'm without a drink... You become a craphead. The world contracts around me. I don't like you very much. I don't like me very much. And at the age of about 14 and a half, I found that a couple of shots of bourbon whiskey, old charter to be specific, taken down, quick, and it didn't come back. Tried to, but it didn't come back up. It almost made it back up. It went back down. And all of a sudden, I felt the power coming through me that I've been looking for all my life. I was the short, fat kid. I, 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 I was the school bookworm. I was the kid who made straight A's that everybody made fun of and didn't talk about. My nickname was Rubber Butt. <laughs> <laughs> I went out in that parking lot at that high school dance. Got, a friend of mine gave me a bottle of old charter, like I say. It got down in there and it went around in and all of a sudden, I felt like... I grew about four or five inches. I felt like I lost about 20 pounds. The pimples fell off my face. 
And rubber butt might have walked out into the parking lot, but Tab Hunter walked back into that. <laughs> I was looking for Debbie Reynolds, Rich. I'm not even a founder that night. Because I discovered a phenomenon in my life. That when I took a drink of alcohol, it changed my relationship to the whole world. It changed my relationship. It made the girls prettier. It did. It made them a lot prettier. And uh, I pursued that feeling into the gates of insanity or death. Because if alcohol does that much for it, it eventually starts doing something to you. Mankind has noticed this from the beginning of recorded history. We have noticed this. And never had anything to do about it. Uh, archaeologists tell us that the, uh, they have found traces of fermented grain or the remnants of wine-making and pottery dating back as far as the year 10,000 B.C. Man has crushed the grape or, or fermented the grain. You know, it's, it's been around for a long time. Now, man didn't have a recorded history till about the year 4,000 in the Babylonian tablets, the clay tablets. And even the clay tablets mention a certain type of drinker who seemed to drink too much. There are hieroglyphs on the walls of the Egyptian pyramids and the tombs dating back 4,000 years that mention a certain type of... that. Well, they talk about the beer ration being given to the builders of the deal and, you know, just the general use of, of, of beer. They, no big deal. But they also mention a certain type that seem to be very, very interested in it. More interested than the rest of the people. There's an ancient Chinese manuscript from, from 2000 B.C. that talks about the uh, courtiers certain number of the courtiers drinking too much wine and, and causing havoc in the emperor's court. You know, uh, the first detailed recorded history we have of an alcoholic is in the Bible. Old Noah. The ark. You know, Noah, I, it's pretty obvious from reading the story, he was, he, was, he was drunk, you know. God tried to sober him off by sending him on a 40-day cruise on a boat. You know? <laughs> and what did old Noah do as soon as he got out of the treatment center? It says right in the Bible, he planted grapevines. He crushed the grape, he drank the wine, and he danced naked before his daughters and before God. Now, does that sound like an alcoholic? Yeah, I identify with old Noah. And from a very, very early time, you see, the strange thing about alcoholism the strange thing about alcoholism is that not everybody who drinks alcohol can become an alcoholic. Statistics show, and it, depends, it kind of varies from country by country, but no more than 10% at the most in any given country or ethnic group can become alcoholic. We see it up around 10% in certain groups like uh, the Irish. I kept. <laughs> you know, my last name is Morel. It wasn't Morel before we moved to Louisiana. The French down there started calling Morel. It was Merle. And Merle is Irish, you know. And about 10% of the Irishmen, about 10% of the American Indians become alcoholic, only about, we, and we don't know why, very small percentage of Italians and, who are still in Italy, or, or Jews become alcoholic. And then it varies, but it's, it's never higher than 10, and it's usually around 5 or 7% of the people who drink alcohol. The rest of the people simply won't drink enough. They say crazy things. They say, no, thank you, I'm starting to feel it. You're starting to feel it. Well, of course you're starting to feel it. Why the hell else are you drinking it? Oh, they'll say something like, oh, God, I'm starting to get sick. Well, you drink right through sick. There is a promised land on the other side of sick. <laughs> Tell them that. 
and they will look at you like you're from another planet, which we are, which we are. But always the question has been, what do we do with the alcohol? What do we do with the alcohol? The first really great description of the alcoholic comes from the 23rd chapter of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs was written by King Solomon, who has a reputation in history of uh, being a man of great wisdom. And uh, he was a great observer of human nature. Now, Solomon was not against the use of wine. I mean, read his glory. One of the great love poems of all time is the Song of Solomon. You know, he talks about his dearly beloved and drinking the wine with her and everything. This is not written by a man who was against drinking. This is written by a man who loved his wine. Who loved his wine. But he observed that there was a certain class of drinker even amongst the Jews. We're talking about 3,000 years ago. We're talking about roughly around the year 1000 B.C. And our friend Solomon wrote this. See if you can identify with this. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? (laughs) Who hath wounds without cause? Have you ever come to and you're bleeding from someplace and you don't know why you're bleeding from there? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. And he says, Thine eyes shall behold strange women. <laughs> Have your eyes ever beheld strange women? God, have I beheld some strange women. Of course, the worst thing is when they're looking at you and that next morning and you know that they're, you're their strange man. You know, there's, oh God. <laughs> Thy heart shall utter perverse things. The personality change. You know, you remember early on in the drinking when, I remember it, when alcohol made me social and fun and good time and wonderful to be around. And then all of a sudden it changed and, and instead of that, crap was coming out of my mouth. And I was getting in fights with people I didn't want to get in fights with and, and saying things that I had no intention of saying. He says, that should be full of perverse things. And he says, yea, that should be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea or he that lieth on the top of a mast. Y'all are right near the ocean. You see a marina out there with sailboats in it. When the water gets stirred up, how the mass sways back and forth, that was certainly James. They have stricken me, thou shalt say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. Ever, ever come to feeling like you've been beat up? Ever come to been beat up? I've had cars that have come to beat up. Then Solomon asked the question, this is the point of all of this. Solomon asked the question that non-alcoholics have been asking about us for 3,000 years. He says, yet when they awake, they will seek it again. When they awake, they will seek it again. After all of the trouble, after all of my troubles and my and, and whatever I come to, and I'd have to have more of that very thing that put me in that, in, in that state. Well, I, could, I could go on out through history, but I think this is just, just shows you that from time immemorial, men of wisdom, physicians, uh, counselors, people that cared, wives, children, whatever, have asked that question. Why are you going up in the morning seeking it again? Look at all the trouble it's caused you. What are you going to do? And from time immemorial, uh, mankind has sought a cure for alcoholism. You know, Muhammad had an idea of a cure for alcoholism. The Quran recommends that a drunkard, they pour molten lead down your throat. I'll guarantee you, you're not going to have a drinking problem after that one. 
And yet, friends of mine who uh, have been to Saudi Arabia tell me that there are meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in Saudi Arabia, and they're not just attended by American workers over there. I have personally been to a meeting with a, with a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous from Afghanistan several years ago. He was passing through New Orleans. I got to talking to him. He's about 10 years sober now. Allah is his higher power. You know, this God of our understanding has gone around the world. And there's the Alcoholics Anonymous is everywhere. But threatening to pour molten lead down didn't, didn't do it. They, they tried locking us up. They tried hanging us. That's another penalty under, the, under Islam uh, law for a, for a drunkard is to hang you. You see, they consider beheading a respectable way to die and hanging is uh, reserved just for drunks. Just for drunks. And nobody ever had a solution. Nobody ever had a solution. It was viewed as uh, a criminal act, and to some extent society still views it that way. It was viewed the way that I looked at it as a personal weakness, as a moral failing. You know, religion is preached against us. Doctors have tried to lecture us and pointed their fingers at us, said, you're ruining your health, and we kept drinking. The preachers and the priests have shaken their fingers at us and said, you know, you're, you're going to hell, boy. And I had to drink even more to handle that, that, you know, time immemorial. Nothing has ever worked. The first person to ever suggest that alcoholism might be something more than a moral failing, might be something more than a criminal problem, was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America. His name was Dr. Benjamin Rush, and he was quite a character. He was a, he was a doctor in uh, Philadelphia. He became the first Surgeon General of the United States. And in the year 1790, he wrote a little, little pamphlet. And I have read this pamphlet. And it's only seven or eight pages long. But he said in there, in effect, all this stuff about this being a moral problem just doesn't make sense to me. He says, I've observed a lot of, he called them chronic drunkards. And he said, that just doesn't seem to explain it. He says, they all seem to act the same. He says, there's, there seems to be some, something different going on with them than there does with people who can take it or leave it alone, even those who get drunk occasionally, who, who drink, uh, there seems to be something different. He says, I think these perhaps are sick people. I think this is some, some form of illness. And he first suggested that in 1790, but nobody paid a whole lot of attention to it because there was no solution. You know, well, in the early part of the 19th century, temperance movements arose. You know, they said, well, we're going to solve the drinking problem by banning alcohol. Well, most folks didn't think too much of that, but within a hundred years, we had prohibition in this country. We actually, in, in 1919, outlawed the importation and sale of spiritus liquors, of all alcoholic beverages. Did that stop us from drinking? Hell no, we drank more. Read Dr. Bob's story in the big book. He says when the prohibition experiment came along, he thought, well, now that it's illegal and I can't get very much of it, it'd be all right for me to drink. Because obviously I couldn't get drunk because there's not going to be enough of it around. So he stocked up his cellar with beer and started drinking. Now, if you understand that kind of thinking, which James understands, you understand why laws against drinking simply don't work. You know, there were various experiments that were tried. In 1840, some guys almost figured the deal out. In 1840, there were a few guys sitting around the bar at, uh, at Chase's Tavern, Baltimore, Maryland, and they were all in a lot of trouble. These were all just uh, uh, middle class. You know, one, one had a, a wagon shop, one was a, a, a little construction business, another had a store. A couple of guys in there were currently unemployed because they drank their way out of it. 
and they were all having trouble at home, and they said, is there some way that we could do something about this deal? You know, we, we, just, we just can't seem to stop drinking. And one of them, we don't know which one it was, suggested, well, maybe if we helped each other, maybe if we helped each other, we could, we could not drink. They said, yeah, that's a great idea. We're going to help each other. We're going to help each other. Well, temperance pledges were real popular at that time. You know, you'd sign a pledge that you were never, ever going to drink again as long as you live. And so they drew up a little temperance pledge and they signed it. But they came up with one other additional idea. They said, let's go out and grab some other guys and bring them in. And bring them in to our next meeting. Let's have a meeting here. Let's meet again here next week and see if we've been able to go a week without a drink. So the next week, each guy was commissioned to bring at least one person back. So the next week, instead of six, they had 12, and the next week, they had 24. And, and pretty soon, they were bringing people in. It became fantastically successful. It was one drunk talking to another. You know, sounds a little bit like Alcoholics Anonymous. And it grew like wildfire. You know, at the end of the first, first year, it spread to other cities. They had maybe four or 5,000 members at the end of the first year. By the end of the second year, they had one meeting in Boston that drew 13,000 people to that meeting. They were holding torchlight parades, there were articles in the paper about them, and they had named themselves the Washingtonians. And they'd done that because George Washington was a big hero of the day and everybody looked down on drunkards, so they figured if they adopted a famous man's name, they wouldn't, uh, they'd have something that they could sell to the public. They were a very evangelistic movement, I mean, they, they just went out, you know, hey, hey, we do it a little differently, you know, we see old, uh, we see old Steve's out there laying in the gutter, you know, if he lives, we'll get him. You know, they went out and, and just pulled you off the bar stools and pulled you out of the gutter, brought him into the meetings. They would have regular meetings, spread like wildfire. And by the end of the second year, they probably had 50 or 60,000 members in the United States. And you got to remember that the country only had about 30 million people in it at the time. It was maybe a tenth the size that it was, it was right now, you know. At the end of five years in A, we only had uh, we only had a hundred people. I mean, people were coming into this thing like crazy. In 1842, they decided to celebrate their second anniversary, so they decided to ask some famous people to come and speak at their events. And at the gathering in Illinois, they asked a, a rising young lawyer there named Abraham Lincoln to come and address the meeting of the Washingtonian Society. And I've seen a copy of his speech there. And it's truly remarkable. It's really remarkable. Because what he says in there, he says, you know, he made this wise observation. He says, you know, drinking must do something more for you than it seems to do for me. You seem so much more interested in it. He says, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no teetotaler. I, I drink occasionally. But when I watch you drink and when I listen to you talk about your drinking, it's much more important to you. It seems to do something for you that it doesn't do for me. Amazingly wise observation from a, from a, non from a non-alcoholic. And it certainly fits in with James's experience. Because I drank for what alcohol did for me, and the hell with whatever it did to me. And he further went on to say, I guess it maybe uh, that's only you drunkards, one drunkard will understand another drunkard. Another amazingly wise observation. It looked as though they had found part of the answer to alcoholism in the early 1840s. The lowest estimate by 1845 of the members of the Washingtonian Society is 250,000. Within five years, they had 250,000. The highest estimate is 500 to 600,000. Now remember, this is a country ten times smaller than it is today. By 1848, there was one group left in the country, and within a few years, nobody had even heard of them. What happened? 
what happened. We're going to really get into this, the traditions. But basically, they collapsed. Within a period of about three years, they collapsed. First of all, they got the idea that every well-meaning spiritual movement that's ever been on the face of the earth seems to have. Gosh, if we can do this much for alcoholics, think what we can do for all of the other ills of society. Think what we can do for the people who are addicted to drugs of the time. And there were drugs then, no cocaine, you know, no, uh, no heroin, but there was opium and there was laudanum. They thought, well, look what we can do for the people who have other moral failings, who, who uh, look at what we can do for society itself. You know, uh, pro-slavery and anti-slavery was a big issue at the time. And some of the Washingtonians became pro-slavery and some became anti-slavery. And whether Texas would be admitted to the Union was a big deal at the time. And some became for it and some became against it. And they were getting their names in the newspaper. And they didn't practice anonymity. And a couple of the leaders of the movement got drunk after about five years. And all of a sudden that was splashed all over the papers. And the whole thing just collapsed. It just collapsed. And they also didn't have a real spiritual program of recovery. They could get sober just by one drunk talking to another. But they didn't have any program of recovery. They didn't have the 12 steps. They vaguely sensed that it had something to do with spiritual. And they talked a lot about God and about religion at their meetings. But when one Presbyterian would start talking about his religion, the Catholics in the audience would get a resentment and the Methodists would. When a Baptist would get up, the Lutherans would get mad. When the Episcopalian would get up, everybody would get mad. <laughs> I'm an Episcopalian, you know, that's sort of Catholic life, you know. It's sort of Catholicism without the guilt, you know. They, I say whenever, whenever four Episcopalians are gathered together, there's always a fifth, you know. <laughs> So they had problems of money, politics, religion, and everything. It just fell apart. Promises start didn't happen. The rest of the 19th century, there was really no solution. A few little movements got started here and there. Religious people tried to sober us up. There have been from time immemorial Christian missions trying to preach us sober. And they all succeed. They always succeed. Nobody actually takes a drink while you're in the mission. You know, think about that. Probably you guys been in the missions. Yeah. Okay, thank you. The problem isn't staying sober when you're in the mission. The problem isn't staying sober when you're in jail. The problem is not staying sober when you're in the jitter joint or the treatment center or the nut house. The problem was what happens when you leave out of there. Those places like that make me thirsty. I have to have a drink to reflect upon the experience. You know, I've been saved a few times. I've been sprinkled. I've been dunked. I've, I got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. It all just made me thirsty. I drink on the way home. Just think about it. You know, tried everything. Nothing much had happened. And the result is, in uh, the first public health statistics that we have in this country about the early 1890s, which are remarkably consistent with any public health statistics you would find from the year 2000, suggest that only 1 or 2% of the what they call then chronic drunkards ever found a way to stop drinking for any period of time. First public health statistics in this country, 1893. 1 to 2% of chronic drunkards, what they what we call today alcoholics, ever stopped drinking. Statistics. Nineteen ninety, early nineties, last we have available. About without Alcoholics Anonymous, about one to two percent of alcoholics find a way to stop drinking for any period of time without Alcoholics Anonymous. The only thing that's changed is Alcoholics Anonymous. So how do we get started? So how do we get started? It's a remarkable story. It's a story of some 
remarkably different sorts of, of guys, gals got together and uh, uh, it's a series of, of things that I guess if you weren't a member of Alcoholics Anonymous you would call coincidences. I prefer to call them God incidences. I can, I can see the hand of a higher power operating through these things. So let me set the stage for you. Let's go back to say 1912, about 90 years ago. And a little, there's a little town called Manchester, Vermont. It's not a very large town. It's probably not much larger than, say, this little tourist town up here of uh, Julian, which we're, we're right outside of. But it's a resort town. There's, there's a lake there called Emerald Lake. And evidently it's a very pretty place. And it's in the Green Mountains of Vermont. Probably looks a lot like this, this camp and the lakes that we've seen around there. And a lot of the wealthy and, and powerful people like to build lake homes there. So they would come from, from New York State and from other parts of New England and buy themselves some nice houses around there. And it was a summer resort. You know, nobody wanted to be there in the winter because it was just all, all snow and ice. But it was an incredibly popular summer resort. From over in Albany, New York, the Thatcher family built a, uh, built a house in Manchester, Vermont. And the Thatchers were very prominent. They owned a company that uh, uh, manufactured uh, the wheels and the undercarriages for railroad cars. And of course, railroads were the primary form of transportation. Ebby uh, Thatcher's grandfather was mayor of, 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 of Albany, New York. His brother later became mayor of Albany, New York. They were wealthy, they were powerful. The city park in, in uh, Albany is called Thatcher Park wealthy and the powerful came there. From Rhode Island came the Hazard family. Rhode Island came the Hazard family, an old family in, in the Hazards and the Perrys. Uh, one of the heroes of the American Revolution, the naval heroes, Oliver Hazard Perry. You know, the Perrys and the Hazards kept intermarrying and uh, uh, old Roland Hazard's family had a summer home there. And they were really wealthy people. They were companies that we'd recognize today. They owned Burlington Mills. You know, people would make the carpet. They owned what became Allied Chemical Company. They were big bucks then. They are big bucks now. Others with perhaps less money came up there. There was a Dr. Burnham that came up from Brooklyn every, every summer. He was a very respected doctor, and uh, uh, he would go up there in summer. And, and uh, a lot of his patients thought so much of him that they would go spend some time up there in the summer, too, just so they could stay around Burnham. And he had a daughter named Lois. And a daughter named Lois. And the Perrys and the Hazards had a son named Roland. And the Thatchers had a son named Ebby. And from about 15 or 20 miles away in the tiny hamlet of East Dorset, Vermont, came a guy named Bill Wilson. Came a guy named Bill Wilson. And Bill's daddy had left a couple of years before. Uh, Bill's daddy drank a bit. And uh, he and his mother uh, had, uh, had split up. He had left and gone out to British Columbia. And divorce wasn't very common in those days. And Bill reports that he felt really different and isolated because his folks had gotten a divorce. Now his grandparents were raising him and they did a damn fine job, but about 1912 they sent him to Burn Burton Academy in, uh, in Manchester, Vermont, and, uh, which was a private school. And you know, you can read the story in the, in the big one. Now look, where do, I get all this, where do I get all this information? Where do I get all this information? It, it's A literature. One of the best kept secrets in Alcoholics Anonymous is Alcoholics Anonymous comes of age. This is a fascinating book. It's a great story. We only sell about, I mean, we sell millions of big books. We sell about 30,000 of these a year. We've got 3 million members worldwide. 
It's a good story. I recommend it. The prefaces and forwards in the book Alcoholics Anonymous give us some of our history. The book, The Language of the Heart, published by the Grapevine, which is a collection of all the articles that Bill Wilson ever wrote that have appeared in the Grapevine. Great stories in here. Great stories in here. I usually bring, uh, but since I was final, I usually bring about a, a dozen or 15 books of these deals, you know, and, uh, but I can only carry so many on the airplane, you know. And uh, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers tells a story of Dr. Bob and how things got started in Akron. The book Pass It On is the biography of Bill Wilson. You can read these things. They're all good stories. They're all fun to read. There are a few things that are not conference-proof, but are grown up around AA, like this book by Ernie Kurtz who happens to be a member of our fellowship and wrote his Ph.D. thesis on a history of Alcoholics Anonymous. The book is called Not God, from the idea that we, it stated on page 62 of the big book, that we had to stop playing God because it didn't work. You know? And Bill Wilson helped him a lot in, in, in writing this book. There's a book by Thompson called Bill W., great biography of Bill Wilson. There's a lot of good books. The tapes back there that Virgil has had, that Virgil has back there, you can listen to the story of Bill you can listen to Dr. Bob's story. We have tapes of, of, the, of all the international conventions. We have the tapes of the 55 convention, where uh, from whence came this book, AA Comes of Age. So there are a lot of these stories. You can talk to the old timers. And I've done all of this because from the first, I found this story interesting, and I found it fascinating. And I wanted to know where we'd come from. You know, when, when, I, when I got sober and was, was talking with uh, the first guy to really sponsor me, his name was Ed Harding. He's going on to the big meeting now. He was known as the old goat. And he looked like an old goat. I mean, he had a, he had a beard and a goatee. He was in his 70s. He did not meet my standards for sponsorship. You know, the first year and a half when I couldn't stay sober, I was looking for somebody uh, who came up to my standards, who was sufficiently educated, perhaps wealthy, uh, drove the right car, in the right clubs. And who do I end up with? I end up with a semi-retired pest control man who used to run guns into Mexico and was married to three different Mexican women. Two of them showed up for his, uh, for his funeral, incidentally. That was interesting. Along with his Anglo wife. God was a guy. But I wanted to know his story, you see. So I found out. And y'all tell your stories and then you tell your stories to each other and we find out about these things. So it interests me. So we get this cast of characters, all of them teenagers, most of them anywhere from 15, 16. You know, Bill at that time uh, it was about 17 in 1912. Roland would have been about 19 or 20. And they all interacted the way the kids do in the summertime. They kind of hung together and, and then they hung apart. And then they went their separate ways pretty much for a number of years. Bill would continually come back there and he eventually married this Lloyd, who became Lloyd Wilson. Became Lloyd Wilson. In 1918, Bill took a drink, and his drink, just like James at that high school dance in 1957, changed his life, changed his attitude, changed his relationship to the world. And Bill set out to conquer the world, this power drive of the alcoholic, you know, this drive for money and fame and power, you know. I got something missing inside, so I'm going to fill it up, and I'm going to—I got to fill it up with something. You know, we all suspect from the start that, that there's something missing in here, something missing, and we try to find it out there. Some of us try to find it in 
success, some of us try to find it by rebelling against success. But it's exactly the same feeling. The 12 and 12 calls it either trying to climb to the top of the heap or hide under it. But it's the same feeling. It's that something's missing. And the only thing that seems to fill that something up is alcohol. And then if you're like me, perhaps the alcohol wasn't working quite well enough, so you start trying a little better living through chemistry. And that doesn't do it either. You know, you don't speed though, you can drink all night, man. Play that part. Phil sets off on the pursuit of wealth and power, you know, goes over in World War I. Uh, uh, uh. Phil doesn't have a, uh, a spiritual life. James really didn't have a spiritual life. I mean, even though I'm, a, I'm an Episcopalian going to, going to Catholic schools in South Louisiana, got a Church of Christ grandmother, I mean, I was really screwed up. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I've been sprinkled, I've been dunked, you know. Uh, whatever. Bill was a lot of stuff that way. And he records in his story that uh, uh, he did have one brief interval in Winchester, England, at the Winchester Cathedral, where for a brief moment, he experienced something greater than himself. Greater than himself. And, and you know, it's recorded in the first part of his story. And he records the uh, tombstone, which he saw at the yard. Now, how's this for a coincidence? I have here, and I'll show it to anybody that wants to see it, a photograph of that tombstone with that little poem on it that's found on page uh, one of our big book. You know, and it's remarkable that Bill, writing 20 years later, virtually remembered it word for word. Okay, now you want to get to the spooky part? The guy that carried the message to Bill was Ebby Thatcher. The guy's tombstone was Thomas Thatcher. Was Thomas Thatcher. Anybody wants to take a look at this afterwards? I have, I'll have it up here. A friend of mine was an airline pilot took a picture of that for me over there. Bill set off to conquer Wall Street. You know the story from, from his story. What you may not realize is that Bill invented a system of market analysis, that is, analyzing the value of stocks by analyzing markets that is used until this day on Wall Street. He was a pioneer. He got off on this idea because nobody financed him to go do it. He bought a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. And he and Lloyd got a sidecar for it, and he and Lloyd spent a year, the year of 1924-25, touring the eastern part of the country, even down to the south, investigating companies and coming up with these deals and when he got back he'd sent in so many good stock tips he was given a given a big job with a, a Wall Street brokerage firm and by 1929 he was a millionaire seven times over and in 1929 a million bucks would still buy something so that was a lot of money Bill was extremely successful but Bill in the meanwhile has become a terrible drunk we all know his story you know if you right there in the book. I won't go through the whole deal. But you know, when the stock market crashed, Bill instead of Bill lost all his money that day. Just like any alcoholic, just like James. I mean, I came here with a lot of money. But I owed more than I had. You know, I just had a real great talent for going down to Whitney Bank signing those notes, boy. You know, you just keep rolling them over. Just keep rolling those notes over. And the more money I make, the more money I spend. There is not enough money for a drinking drunk. You know, when Larry last night was talking about that guy that had, had you know, he went through a million bucks in a year and a half. Doesn't matter how much you got. You're gonna spend it all and borrow some more too, you know? One's good, two's better. If you get it on credit, I'll take four. Huh? Identify? Bill Wilson was exactly that kind of guy. And the early thirties found him a hopeless, helpless drunk. He had reached the same point that James finally had to reach, where you can't get out of your house. 
where I would drink the clock around where uh, the fit tell the night from the day, you know, and uh, just like Bill, Barney would find me drinking gin and steady. I mean, you know, he, he doctors, well-meaning doctors were giving drugs, or maybe he just found drugs, and he'd take those and attempt to do something about his alcoholism, and that wouldn't work. And, and uh, Bill was still a functioning alcoholic, though, according to our definition. His wife still had a job. <laughs> Never put down working wife. My first sponsor, the old goat, told me, says, remember, James, a working wife is worth three rent houses. I was great. I've never been able to get any of my wives to work. You know, one of the guys asked me, said, you going to talk about relationships? I've been married, been divorced twice in AA. You know, you, you, don't, you don't want to hear about relationships from me, you know. <laughs> okay. The second character is Roland Hazard. Roland Hazard quickly rose to the very top of his family's business. And by the mid-twenties, although he was still a very young man, had become chairman of the board of Allied Chemical Company in Burlington Industries, which made him one of the most wealthy and most powerful men in the company. But Roland was drunk. His family knew he was a drunk. He knew he was a drunk, and he tried everything that you and I have tried. He would go to the drying out joint. He tried religion. He was an Episcopalian, just like me. He, he went to the extent at Calvary Church in, in New York City. He went and uh, uh, spent a huge amount of money buying a stained glass window for the place. Still got drunk. You know, that, that, that didn't work for him. Finally, in 1931, his family was just really perplexed. He was perplexed. And they got together and held a family meeting. And they said, we're going to send you to the best doctor in the world and see if maybe he can do something. Now, there are two guys that founded the science of psychiatry. There is Sigmund Freud, Austria, and there is Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, but pronounced Jung or Jung, from Zurich, Switzerland. And Carl Jung was a disciple of, initially of Sigmund, of Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud. Later on, they kind of they kind of split off. They kind of split off because Jung acquired this idea that just totally repulsed Freud that man had a spiritual component to his life and to his psyche. That there was something more to man than just a set of emotions and feelings and two dollars worth of chemicals mixed together. That there was a spiritual component. Fortunately for us, at the time, Freud was a little busy, so they said, well, we'll send him to Jung. They send Roland in 1931 over to Carl Jung in Zurich, Switzerland, and say, stay there as long as it takes, but we want you to become all right. Well, Jung got to like Roland had. I mean, you know, Roland was, you know, as most of us are, we get in a lucid interval. The book calls it a lucid interval. <laughs> and uh, and we're, we're pretty good, we're pretty good people, you know, and... He was out there on Carl Jung's estate on, on Lake Zurich, and it was a beautiful place. And, uh, he stayed there with him for a year. And Jung psychoanalyzed him and discussed uh, things with him, and they actually became, became good friends. Uh, at the end of this year, Jung finally says, Well, I think I've done all I can, all I can do for you. And uh, you're going uh, to go have to 
he's go back go back to work and, and Roland was feeling very confident I mean how many of you have been in the jitter joint or the jail or someplace similar treatment center someplace similar to that for a period of time and thought yeah I got this thing licked now I got this thing licked feel better looking better feel good everything's all right I'm gonna be all right now well I was in two nut houses and, and I kind of came out with that feeling of course, when I was in the first one, I really identified with Larry's story last night. When I was in the first one, I was so embarrassed and ashamed. I mean, I just made partner in this big law firm, and all of a sudden, I'm in this nut house, and I got delivered there drunk, not a treatment center. And uh, to prove to my partners that I was all right, while I was in the nut house, I got the bright idea to buy a radio station in Mobile, Alabama. And I'll tell you what, when you're dealing with the president of International City Bank, and the only phone number you can give him is the payphone on the lock ward. <laughs> you develop a phone obsession. You watch that phone because there's some really funny characters in there that might get to it before you do. <laughs> yeah. My partner in that station were a bunch of drunks, too. God, we had a wonderful time with that thing. I mean, we pumped that sucker up. I mean, we had so many sales. Probably was. It was all trade out, man. We had to trade it out for bar tabs and. Lincoln Continentals and apartments and girls and all this kind of stuff and of course it all collapsed just a bunch of drunks you know we'll buy anything as long as we buy it on credit but Roland was at that same stage that, that, that James is in and maybe that you were in and thought hey I've got this deal left now I'm, I'm alright feel good feel wonderful I'm going to go back and run that family business I'm not going to have a drinking problem anymore in those days there were not many in the way of airplane travel so he gets on the train heads towards from Zurich you go first to Paris then you go catch a boat Catch one of the big ocean liners like Queen Elizabeth or something, Queen Mary, and go back to the United States. And uh, uh, there was a little problem. He decided to stop off in Paris, and somebody asked Roland the wrong question. Asking the wrong question, they said, Roland, would you like a drink? And Roland got the idea that James has had it on a number of occasions, saying, Well, God, one drink wouldn't hurt. Just one drink. God, I haven't had a drink in a year. One drink couldn't possibly hurt me. Roland had one drink, didn't hurt him. Thought, hmm? Did he get a file of this? One drink didn't hurt. I might as well have another one. So he had another one. Within two days, he was face down, drunk, in the gutter in Paris. Uh, he had gotten beaten up. He was in terrible shape. Uh, he threw about a week long drunk there. Some of his friends piled him back onto a train and shipped him back to Carl Jung in Zurich. The story that I'm telling you is found in chapter two of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. What I'm relating to you here is found beginning on page 26 of our book of our book of experience, when it talks about a certain American businessman. They're talking about this guy Roland Hansen, and he went back to Young. And remember, this guy's got a blank check. Nobody can afford uh, any more treatment than this guy. Yeah. He goes back to you and he says, take me back, you know, I'm drunk again, you've got to treat me some more. Our lives were saved at that point by this great and good and wise man, one of the true geniuses of the 20th century. He looked at Roland, it's right there in our book, and he said, Roland, I can't help you. I have misdiagnosed your case. You see, Roland, I thought you were a manic depressive. I thought your problem was manic depression. And I've been very successful with, with manic depression. He says, oh, you know, we've, we've, analyzed, we've analyzed you, we've gone through all of this, and he said, I had great hopes for you, but I have misdiagnosed your case. Roland, you are what is known as an alcoholic. You are an alcoholic. And to the best of my knowledge, remember, this is the 
greatest doctor in the world speaking, a founder of the science of psychiatry, a man who is still followed today by tens of thousands of his, of his union psychiatric disciples. And he says, to the best of my knowledge, there is no medical treatment for alcoholism. Roland says, well, what, what should I do? He says, well, he says, you only have two choices. You, you're either going to have to be locked up somewhere where you can't get a drink, or you're going to have to hire a bodyguard. Otherwise, you will intermittently drink until you go mad or you die. Medical science has no help for you. And Roland was immediately deflated at death. He says, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm ruined. I'm screwed. Is isn't there any help? Does anything happen? Is, is there any way out? And Jung, this great and good man, said, Yes, here and there, once in a while, so rare as to be phenomenon of nature, men have had what is called vital spiritual experience, where the whole attitude and outlook upon life has changed, and they've been able to not drink again. And Roland said, Wonderful, I'm a vestryman of the Episcopal Church. I'll just increase my contribution to the Young says, no, 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 Roland, that's all really nice. But if that had worked, you wouldn't be sitting here with me right now. What I'm talking about is a transforming spiritual experience. Roland said, how do you have one? Jung said, quite honestly, nobody knows. Put yourself on a spiritual path and hope the divine lightning strikes you. Now, think about it for a moment now. Just your own experience. How it is. Suppose somebody had told you that instead of the hand of Alcoholics Anonymous reaching out to you and saying, here, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what happened. Right. Here's not only one of the greatest doctors in the world, but a man that Roland respected above all others, saying, I don't know how to tell you how to, have, how to do this. We're going to get back to this, but I have passed out here, not only reading the traditions and stuff, which we're going to be going through this afternoon as we tell the story of Alcoholics Anonymous. But in 1961... I hope everybody's gotten one. I've got more of them up here. I tried to get them passed out. If you don't have them, they're, they're up here. In 1961, Bill, as part of completing some of his own nine-step work, decided it was necessary, and my sponsor got me doing this, too. He said it's necessary not only to go back and make direct amends for the harms that you've done, it's also necessary to thank the people that have helped you. So Bill set out in 1961 to thank a lot of the people who had helped in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, and top of his list was Carl Jung. And you can find Bill's letter, I didn't have room to print all of that, at, uh, well, I'll give you the page uh, number on here, in uh, page 276 of, of Language of, of the Heart. You can read Bill Wilson's letter to Carl Jung, telling about the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous and about, Ro about Roland Hazard. You see, now we're coming down to really what the heart of the, what the, heart of the matter is. And... The heart of the matter is, is that ancient question that every alcoholic, if you're sitting in this room, you've asked yourself, because James has asked And I know that you've asked. You know, the topic came up Thursday night of, of being able to look each other in the eye. It's one of the promises of the fifth step. You know, that we'll be able to look the world in the eye. And why? Because I've taken these steps, because I've heard many fifth steps, I know that there's nothing that you've done or thought about doing that I haven't done or thought about doing because I've shared, shared these experiences. I slowly, because of being with you, found out what was wrong with me. But I came in here not with a clue of it. I was asking that ancient question that Solomon had asked and so many others had asked, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? It looks like alcohol. Everybody's telling me things like, you drink too much. 
And what I really want to tell them, no, you don't understand. It isn't that I drink too much. It's I can't seem to get enough. I can't seem to get enough for Christ's sake. You know, it, it seems like that, that solution is drink what? That, indeed, I'm in times when a full understanding of the truth of the universe is about one drink of what? You know? And get that other drink, get that other, and it gets oblivion. You know, when y'all had rolling blackouts in California last summer, I thought, shit, I had those for years. I even had a rolling blackout in California. Last time I was in San Diego, I was having a rolling blackout. I'd set up for Dallas, wound up in Santa Fe, somehow Tahoe, and then I found myself in San Diego, got invited to leave Tijuana. Oh. You know, they don't want you to leave with one of those girls. One of those little bars, she was so cute, I was going to bring her back to this country with me. And the management thought they needed her services there more than I did. I never mind a bunch of folks down there. Anyway, uh, I wish I could tell you the full story, but it just kind of in and out, you know, a little rolling blackout at the time. But the question was, what's wrong with me? Looks like alcohol, smells like alcohol, and God knows alcohol is a terrible problem when we get here. It, but it, of itself, it and God knows we've tried to control and enjoy our drinking through using every drug known to mankind. You know, James certainly did. No, that didn't work. And a quick question that the alcoholics would always answer, what's wrong with me? You know, these other things should have fixed it. You know, fame and power. I, I set off my own personal story in, this, in pursuit of fame and power. I always had that emptiness inside of me. You know, if I became a partner in this law firm, if I got that radio station, if I got this wife, if I had the son, I had the daughter, then if I divorced the wife, if I got a membership in this club, if I got the sailboat, oh, I got the sailboat, you know, I was going to sail off to Key West. My sister, a year or two ago, was visiting me from New York City, and I said, well, is there anything I haven't made amends to you about? That, you know, I really, you know, because we've become good friends in this program. We really have. And, and she says, there's only one thing, James. She says, I still have a kind of a resentment that she never took me out on that sailboat. And I laughed. She said, what are you laughing about? I said, well, I could never make it out of the auto over on the sailboat. I go get on the damn sailboat, motor as far as barge bar, tie up there, start drinking, wake up the next morning with my roof of my mouth sunburned, you know, and, and I said, I never made it out of the yacht, however. You know? <laughs> You're not the only one that hadn't been out on it. <laughs> oh. Her eyes glazed over, she gives that Alanon look, you know, like, oh. <laughs> Question, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? It's in this letter, and I, I, I keep copying this letter. It's important. Because not only Bill write this thank you letter, but Carl Hume almost immediately wrote Bill back. And it's fortuitous that, you know, the little God incident. Carl Hume died a couple of months later. Bill wrote just in time. So I always heard, you know, if you've got an amend to make, make it right now. Make it when you can. It doesn't say whenever, it says wherever. That means if there's opportunities there, make it. Because you don't know how much longer they're going to be around. Where Carl Hume confirmed every aspect of the story told 25 years before in the writing of the big book. But he looks at it very profoundly. He says that Roland's craving for alcohol, I guess this was your own experience, was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness. In medieval language, the union with God. You see, I didn't know until I got together with you, and I didn't know until you had told me your stories and touched me with your love and your caring. And so then I became willing to take these steps that I found out that this big hole in here was a God hole. And Carl Jung in 1931 knew that. He said, but I had to be careful how I talked in those days. You know, this is pretty intolerant times. 
I couldn't tell him the whole story. I could give him enough of a hint to say, go find your spiritual experience. You know, he says it's the only way to such experience that happens to you in reality. And it can only happen to you when you, for many words, when you walk on a path that leads you to higher understanding. He says you might be led to this path by an act of grace. And indeed there are those among us who've had this little spiritual experience and then come to us. Or through a personal and honest contact with friends. That's alcoholics anonymous. Or through a higher education of the mind beyond the confines of rare rationalism. Now, I don't know anybody that's ever done that, but uh, maybe he could do that. With us, it seems to be grace, and it seems to be contact with each other. He says, I see if you're letter that Roland chose the second way, that is, contact with, with friends. He goes on to say, I'm strongly convinced that the evil principle prevailing in the world leads the unrecognized spiritual need into perdition. I mean, straight into hell. Well, Alcoholics Anonymous open the gates of hell and let me out. Leads to perdition if it is not counteracted by either real religious insight, and he's using religious in the sense of spiritual here, real religious insight, or by the protective wall of human community. And I submit to you we have both in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have real religious, real spiritual insight used in that sense. And we have this protective wall of human community which we have created ourselves, our groups and our sponsorship in Alcoholics Anonymous. He goes on to say, you see Latin in, in Latin, alcohol is spiritual. And the same word for the highest religious or spiritual experience as well as the most depraving poison, the helpful form of those therefore is, in Latin, spiritus contra spiritus. The spirit works against the spirit. You know, there was a liquor store up this way called Mountain Spirit. We all noticed it coming by. Gosh, when I got to the registration desk, everybody there from six days to uh, seven days to Friday with Mondo on up to 20 years, we were all talking about the sign out in front that said, Margarita's $1.25, you know? No matter how long we been sober, we still noticed a bargain, didn't we? Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, we all thought it was a good deal, you know. No, we went and got one, though. And Jung quotes... Jung quotes here, and, and for some reason when they reprinted this in the grapevine, they did not put this in here, but I've seen a copy of the original letter. Jung quotes Psalm 42. As the heart, that's H-A-R-T, which is the deer. As the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. He suggested we've been on a spiritual quest all along. You know. But all he could tell Roland at the time was, go put yourself in a spiritual atmosphere and see what, uh, see what happens. And see what happens. And Roland went to the Oxford group for those days. The Oxford group, uh, there was a great spiritual thirst after World War I. We came out of World War I a lot like we came out of Vietnam. I still realize that today. But, you know, we got over there and, and we won a great victory and then it just all crumbled. Of course, in Vietnam, I don't guess we felt we'd won the great victory, but it, it all crumbled and people became very disillusioned. Very disillusioned. You know, gosh, we put out all this effort and, and it's all gone to hell and they're all fighting over each other anyway. and, and uh, so there was, became a great spiritual thirst. And a guy, a Lutheran minister who had had a little spiritual experience over in England, uh, put together a, uh, a group which he called the First Century Christian Movement. And his idea was to get rid of all the theology, get rid of all the denominationalism, get people together, not in churches, but in little groups that would meet at houses or meet on weekends in places like this. And men would get together and discuss spiritual things without letting a lot of theology get in the way. 
and they would meet together and they would pray together. And Butler was one of the truly interesting characters of the of the 20th century. And it became very successful. It started uh, started in England, spread to the United States. Uh, Episcopal minister, a priest named Sam Shoemaker, Calvary Episcopal Church, and which is the biggest one in New York City, the church that Roland was in, the church that Roland put the stained glass window up for. Uh, he became sort of the leader of the movement in the United States. It became known as the Oxford Group, just kind of by accident, because uh, a group of these people they they were very evangelistic, though they weren't weren't like us. I mean, they'd go out and really try to spread the spread their message, and they were extremely successful in doing it. Uh, they would have what they called house parties, which were like what we're doing this weekend, where they get together and, and discuss spiritual things, and they have quiet time, and they pray together, and they would fellowship together, and people would get up and share their stories. Similar, but not exact. And uh, one group of these people were traveling to one of these events, and they happened to be from Oxford University in England. They had some stickers on their bags that said Oxford, and a reporter called them the Oxford Group, and, and that name just stuck. So instead of first century Christianity, it became, it became the Oxford Group, and uh, became very successful. It started off a lot like us. They had some of the same ideas we had. We'll talk about a little more of that later. One of their first books published uh, in the early 20s by a guy named Harold Bigby, who incidentally set the pattern, it was called Twice Born Men. No one was mentioned by their personal name in that. Even the leader of the movement was known as F.B. They still had, they had an early idea that anonymity, you know, and they told their, they told their stories of religious conversion. They were primarily interested in drunks. We were fairly inconvenient. Here and there, once in a while, a drunk had sobered up. And one such was uh, almost by accident. I mean, you know, uh, drunks were inconvenient. You know, Sam Shoemaker had tried sobering up drunks there at Calvary Church, and one of them who kind of got unsober one night threw a shoe through one of his stained glass windows, so he decided to get the drunks out of there. But he still likes drunks, so he, they go and buy a, an old mission down in the southern part of Manhattan and opened up a mission down there for the drunks. He figured if he just kept them about a mile or two away from the church, you know, <laughs> be a little better, you know? Just, you know, drunks are all right, just keep a couple miles away. And, uh, oh, fascinating story. I mean, and the Oxford groups did extremely well. Uh, uh, there was a guy named Jimmy Newton in, in Akron, Ohio, where all the rubber industry was uh, centered at that time. and. Uh, he worked for Firestone Tire and Rubber Company, and he had gotten in the Oxford group, and uh, the old Firestone who had the company, his son Bud, was a bad drunk, so Jimmy got Frank Buckman and Sam Shoemaker to talk to him, and he had a religious experience, got sober. All of a sudden, Firestone thinks this is great, invites a bunch of the Oxford group people out at his expense to Akron, and they start the Oxford group in Akron. And amongst the first members there was, guess who? Dr. Bob and Ann Smith. They were there. They were there. Henrietta Cyberling was there. All the other characters we're going to talk about later were there. Start the Oxford groups there. These people were really successful. So, Buckman at some point changed, though. And the idea of just one person talking to another, he developed this new idea called change a man, change the nation, change the world. That became his motto. And he thought, well, if I'm going to change a man, it better be a rich and powerful man. So he started going out for the rich and the powerful. He started going out for the head of Goodyear Tire and Rubber, Walter Chrysler, who was the head of, of uh, uh, Chrysler Corporation. Harry Truman, the President of the United States after Franklin Roosevelt. Harry Truman was a member of the Oxford Group. The Rockefellers were very interested in the Oxford Group. I mean, this was a very successful deal. Like I say, they weren't all interested in drunks. Drunks tend to be noisy, they tend to throw bricks through windows, you know. 
what Roland had gotten sober in. Roland had gotten sober in. And one of the Oscar group ideas was you got to carry our message. They were very evangelistic about it. You know, they were kind of, they'd, they'd go out and, and visit you time and time again. They didn't want you to ask for help. They were going to go get you. And in the summer of 1935, 34, our friend Eddie Thatcher resurfaced. And Eddie had had his problems. Now, Eddie had been a drinking buddy of Bill Wilson's. I mean, they had once flown into, uh, uh, we're going to take about another five minutes and we're, we're, going, to, we're going to get an Eddie. Ebby sober, then we're going to take a break for lunch and we'll come back and, and finish the story with the growth of AA. But Ebby had gone through the family fortune. I mean, his father had died. He inherited a bunch of money. It took him about three years to spend it all. He'd inherited almost a half million dollars, and that was a lot of money at the depth of the Depression in the early 30s, and he blew it. And the family exiled him from Albany to the, to the home in Manchester, Vermont, because they wanted him out of town. He was an embarrassment. He was a drunk. They could go stay in the family house over there. He quickly became a, an embarrassment there. He did things like driving into the... He, he got a little drunk kipoo one day and just kind of drove off the road and drove right into this farmhouse, smashed into this woman's kitchen, leaned out the window and says, Ma'am, I just thought I'd stop by for a cup of coffee. <laughs> Vermonters are not known for their sense of humor. He called the cops. <laughs> so, Ebby had been in trouble time and time. The judge had told him that, which I'm sure most of you have heard. If you come here one more time, I'm going to put you away. Anybody heard that? <laughs> it's just so that, you know? And, of course, my reaction is, I'm going to have a drink to think about how it feels being there, you know. Um, then Ebby had decided to stay sober by uh, physical activity and he was going to paint his house. We got a few painters in this room, you know, but Ebby was still a little shaky from his last drunk and he was afraid to get above six feet because he was afraid to fall off the ladder. So he painted the first six feet of the house all the way around the house. That's a two-story house, you know. Yeah, it's looking a little odd, but Ebby's not going to drink anymore and he, and he lay back in a lawn chair to admire his work and a pigeon flew over and dropped a love offering on, and this, this really hacked him off, you know. This pigeon is shat upon my new paint. So Eddie goes to get something to show, show him away. As he's walking down the stairs, he's gotten rid of all the booze in the house, except here was a case of homebrew senior. Now, Eddie had a thought at that point. You know how we all accept thoughts? His thought was this. His thought was this. You know, I'm never ever going to drink again as long as I live. I'm just never going to drink again. And if I'm not going to drink again, I've got to make sure that none of my friends drink again. Here's this homebrew sitting right here in this house. One of my friends might come over and drink this homebrew. Now, since I'm never ever going to drink it, it wouldn't hurt if I drank that to protect my friends. Whereupon, Eddie starts drinking. Are you with me? I mean, you know, if you were with me, if you understand this thought process, you are sitting in the right room. So, Eddie drinks all the homebrew, gets drunk as a lord, instead of coming out with a broom to shoot off the pitch, he comes out with a double barrel shotgun and starts blazing away. Well, even on a, I mean, he's blasting pigeons, you know, and even in Manchester, Vermont, that'll draw a cop, you know. And Eddie's back in front of the judge once again. The judge's getting ready to send him off for life. And who shows up but Roland Hazard? Another one of these little coincidences. Roland had been in New York City and just decided, just for the heck of it, to go up and spend a week or two with, uh, with his friends up there. Took some of his Oxford group friends up there. And one of them happened to be the son of the judge, Zebra Graves, who himself had had a little drinking problem in him. See, we tend to attract other drunks. Even in the Oxford group, the people that Roland had brought around were people who were alcoholics, just like us. Even though he wasn't set out to do this, we instinctively do this. So Roland and Seeper go to see the judge, and even though it's 
it's his uh, it's his son out there. The judge is still shaking his head, and said no, no, no. But Roland says the magic word because first he's saying we found a way to sober him up. The judge is saying no, he's had his last chance. Then Roland says the magic word. We will take him out of the state of Vermont and never ever let him come back. Judge says you've got a deal. You've got a deal. I like that deal. Yeah. Take old Eddie back down to the uh, uh, to New York City and. Uh, uh, put him into that mission that Sam Shoemaker opened up down there and Evie got sober and Evie got sober and he was doing better and I see it's 11.35 got about 5 minutes left okay let me get Evie to fill and then we'll, we'll take about another about 3 or 4 minutes and then we'll pick up the story after that the Oxford group is on your back to do evangelization movement so they're on Evie's back to go visit somebody, go do something, and Evie thinks of Bill. I mean, Evie's a drunk. He thinks of another drunk. Thinks of his old friend Bill Wilson, who's really down on his luck. Locates Bill, calls Bill, and says, I'm going to come to see you. Story's in our book. Bill said, thank God we can all drink together. And Evie shows up there sober. Evie shows up sober. And uh, Bill had never seen him sober since they were little kids together. Never seen him sober. So what's happened? Evie says, I got religion. Bill says, oh, shit. He's like, what? I mean, you're drunk there. You're, you're, you're drinking gin and pineapple juice, and, and this guy shows up, and he's got religion. Oh, yeah. Bill says a wonderful thing there. He says, well, my gin would last longer than his preaching. But Bill was hopeless at that time, and he was helpless. And he knew it. He had been in and out of the jitter joint, been in and out of town's hospital. You know, and, and he knows he's at the end, and he's tried time and time again to, to not drink, and he can't not drink. And Bill says, okay, what kind of brand is it? And Evie says, well, it's really not a brand at all. It's just really just a simple spirit, a little formula. He says, it's not denominational. We just get together, and we try to help each other. We network, we're licked. We, we uh, talk it over in confidence with another person. We try to set right some of the wrongs that we have we have done, and, and uh, we... Go out and try to help somebody else without any thought of, of reward. And furthermore, we try to pray to whatever God there might be for help in doing this. Bill says, well, just what God are you praying to? And Emmy says, right there, something that saved your life and saved my life. Said something that Bill Wilson couldn't argue with. And I think if, if you heard it in the right context, I think he almost said it out of disgust. Because, I mean, he's trying to deal with Bill and he's not getting through it. He says, well, just choose your own concept of God. Just choose your own concept. And he told Bill something that Bill couldn't argue with. So you, you choose your own concept of God. And then Bill, Ebby, just playing prudence, didn't stay there too long. But Ebby's presence haunted Bill. Haunted Bill over the next two or three years. Bill could not stop drinking. And Ebby went back and saw him one more time, took Zebra Graves and Chef Carnell along. Those were called Oxford Group Closers. They came in and really tried to pound Bill with the spiritual aspect. Bill kept drinking, kept drinking a little bit more and more. I kept drinking more and more, but he couldn't get these people out of his mind. Bill went down to, to Calvary Mission. Cal, uh, Calvary Mission. Got up drunk in the pulpit and told his story, you know. I can't remember what he said, but it, people who were there remembered. Any of y'all done that? <laughs> and Bill on... Well, it's, it's, it's 20 till, and I want to tell that story. When we come back after, after lunch... We're, we're out of time now. We've got to get this thing, thing set up. We come back after lunch. 
We'll talk about Bill and Bob getting sober and about the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous and about our fellowship and about our traditions. I thank you.